Hi there, I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and I want to welcome you to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. I'm Scarlett Fu from Bloomberg Television. In this installment, Chamath Palihaptia, CEO of Social Capital, speaks with Bloomberg's Pim Fox about his idea of success and what drives innovation. Social Capital is a private equity partnership of philanthropists, technologists, and capitalists who are using venture capital to solve tough problems relating to inequality and opportunity. Chamath's professional self-actualization largely inspired his purpose-driven work. Let's hear more from him. First uh, a question, and I don't know whether everybody knows who you are, but I practice your, your last name at least, and I'm a failure at it, you know. Um, Palihapitiya. And I asked you as we walked in, uh, uh, what did it mean? And you very kindly offered. Well, I said uh, my last name, I'm not sure, but my first name means warrior. Chamath. 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 Means warrior in Sanskrit. Uh, or as I said to you then after, that's what I used to tell girls. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, so in, I got to start with really the most important uh, question, yeah. which is uh, Steph Curry's ankle. What? Knee. What? Knee. Uh, knee. I beg Grade you. One can you please give us some detail and an update? I mean, I know as much as you know. Uh, what I would say is, uh, man, that was a that, that was a great game. Tuesday night? Was it Tuesday night? Yeah, Tuesday night. Uh, I think he's going to be okay, obviously. And uh, I think the goal will not be to play him if you don't have to, which is what I would suspect. So as long as these guys keep rolling along, it should be pretty good. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, basketball for just a second, because I understand that uh, there have been comments made about how a team, particularly the Golden State Warriors, may be uh, run in a way that is more futuristic than some other teams. And a lot of that has to do with technology, and a lot of that has to do with the things we're going to talk about here today. And I'm wondering if you could just help us make that segue, because obviously your involvement in both uh, is not just accidental. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, look, forget, forget that it's a basketball team, actually. If you just wanted to do anything really well, um, anything, play basketball, play football, build a product, start a company, raise a family. Um, at the end of the day, I think you have to do two things reasonably well. The first is I think you have to have a good complementary mix of personalities. And I think that um, a lot of times it's very hard to have balance in personalities uh, for various reasons. And then the second is that I think you need to focus at whatever the actual job is at hand and use whatever tools are available to extract out all the other stuff that just distracts you. Because otherwise, those things burden you, it burdens your mind. That then affects the relationships that you have with the people around you. That then probably causes you to not be able to work together. And so I think if I look at like a great run company that we've invested in like Slack or what I see at the Warriors, it's a very complementary set of personalities that work together well and they know what they are supposed to focus on and then they are able to use 
tools and technologies in many cases to abstract away all these other things so that they can focus on the job at hand. Can you give us an example of when you first encountered this? Where did you see this first in your career? Well, it's actually easier to describe a, an example. Um, I mean, one of my kind of like general life principles is people conflate luck and skill all the time. And so the things that work are actually not that meaningful, quite honestly, because you don't really know in the moment why something is working. Um, but oftentimes when things don't work, you have a very good sort of trail of breadcrumbs that that thing is not the right thing in that moment for a bunch of important reasons. And so I have to tell people a lot, I can't, I've learned more, for example, when I worked at AOL, which was highly dysfunctional, extremely political, you know, sort of an archaic kind of decaying organization at that time, uh, than I've learned in many other situations because you were in a situation where you had to basically unpack why all of these things weren't working and, and then try to tell yourself if you chose to, okay, well, if I'm ever in this position again, these are all the things that I'm never gonna do. Um, that was probably the most instructive kind of like team situation that I was in. And then when things really work, you know, like at Facebook, you're kind of just like, is it working because I showed up today? What if I didn't show up today? It probably would still be working. It probably, most of it's working because Mark showed up in the 2004, you know? Um, so uh, you have to approach it like with just a, like a tremendous amount of humility. Like when things work, longevity comes because you don't take yourself too seriously. And when things don't work, it's a perfect opportunity to do what most people don't spend enough time doing, which is actually trying to gain true knowledge um, because just, you know, society's incentives aren't built that way. Society's incentives are built to wrap a bunch of, you know, nonsensical BS and, and terminology and verbiage on top of things that are working so that you can basically pretend that you know what you are doing. And society undervalues things that don't work because we want to lionize winners and we basically you know, kind of like throw away people that don't win. Um, that's why Silicon Valley, by the way, is so special. The value system is actually inverted. You know, people that have started things that were spectacular failouts, fl flameouts, actually get more respect than people that have actually built something that works. And the reason is because we appreciate that ambition. And we're like, well, if but for the grace of God, you know, me as well. And, uh, and the, 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 the line between that failure and success is so minute, um, that you see a lot of these folks that get on the right side of that, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, their, I was gonna say their shit doesn't smell, but I know we're on TV, so uh, their poop doesn't smell. Uh, and you just laugh at them because like they're just like complete clowns in real life. So anyway, that's a long-winded, I probably didn't even answer. No, that. no, that, uh, that, that's very good because it, it kind of leads me into uh, perhaps a, a deeper exploration of your role and how you perceive all of the companies. Because when I asked uh, various people in the audience, um, what would they want to learn from you? What would they like to hear uh, about? One of the things had to do with the variety of the companies in, the diff in different areas. And so maybe you could explain a little bit about how they all fit together and where they yeah. reside in your brain. Yeah. And even do it on a chronological so, basis, because well, that's. So here's the thing. I, um, so we invest in a bunch of different areas healthcare, education, financial services, enterprise software, some consumer. Um, 
And you could say, well, that seems really diffuse. What's the commonality? And the commonality is actually something that's much more important, which actually speaks to something that's structurally happening at a societal level. So if you look at the following trail of breadcrumbs, if I said to you, what is the commonality between Facebook, Uber, Twitter, Airbnb, just to pick four companies, it's hard to actually think that, that these things are similar other than that maybe they're startups. And in fact, what is actually similar about them is that these are very key early proof points of a change in business model that the world is undergoing. And the change in business model is something where we've now started to question traditional hierarchies and top-down company building in favor of a much more organic peer-to-peer -peer construction of power and in many ways equality and opportunity. How does that manifest itself? So if you take, look at Facebook as an example and Twitter, these are two perfect examples of basically actually redistributing power and um, capability and knowledge from a small class of, I mean, we're saying this while we're in Bloomberg, but media companies, in favor of individual people because we say, well, this person that's across the street from me that I trust can also teach me something just as important. And when you do that at scale, all of a sudden you find that you get ground truth in really interesting ways. Uber does that by disrupting transportation in a bottoms up peer-to-peer -peer democratic way. Airbnb does that for housing. That idea of reallocating and redistributing power from a top-down hierarchy to a bottoms up peer-to-peer -peer democracy hasn't yet really touched the most structurally important parts of our economy. And those structurally important parts of our economy really hold people back and actually prevent them from achieving opportunity. Place things like healthcare, things like education, things like financial services. And so that's how we organize our investing. And I think in the absence of us and other people like us doing that kind of thing at scale and then doing it successfully, I think what happens is that a lot of the frustration that you see today that's exhibited in things like Occupy Wall Street a few years ago, in things like the you know, sort of like protests and riots in, in London, the terrorist attacks in Paris, um, even the votes, you know, the, the support for Bernie Sanders on the left and Donald Trump on the right. These are all manifestations of that same set of core principles and beliefs, in my opinion. And so I think there's no more important work that's going on than that redistribution and reallocation of power. And for me, it's just very simple because using technology, we can just sort of cut through a lot of the um, infrastructure and red tape and incentives to retard the system from actually changing. If that makes any sense. Okay, so that would lead me to ask, what about the money? Because money's the an artifact. Money is an uh, artifact. Uh, of uh, wait, just, just, just because I want to talk about a trillion uh, dollar Amazon uh, as well. Money is just a representation of something, right? I mean, you, I you mentioned power. I think it's a measure of something. Okay. It's a lagging indicator of progress. It's a lagging indicator of change. It's a lagging indicator of value. But the key word there is lagging. So when you create something that's structurally important and changes something for the better, it has an inherent value. Some of that is expressed in monetary terms, revenue and profit. So. If you actually have a more basic desire, which is to get rich, then I think you should focus on what I just talked about, which is upending these hierarchical systems in a bottoms-up democratic way. If you care about social progress, 
you should focus on what I just talked about, which is upending hierarchies and bottoms up. If you care about equality, you should focus on <laughs> I mean, so, so all roads lead back to this same core principle. It is the most important business model of the next century. It's the most important philosophical and moral decision that's being asked and answered every day. And so to me now, at some level, it's become relatively obvious that this is where everybody should be spending their time. Um, and I just think that the result of that change will be a, uh, a more symmetric and fair world. And an artifact of that will be that some of us will probably aggregate tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in the process. And why that's important is best related by a, a relatively well-known quote from Nathan Rothschild. Um, Nathan Rothschild, you know, sort of scion of the British part of the banking dynasty, the Rothschild dynasty. And he was asked about his perspectives on, uh, you know, the person, uh, the, the ruler of the British Empire. And he said something to the effect of, you know, he doesn't care um, who rules the empire. He who controls the money supply controls the British Empire. I control the British money supply was his comment. And that, it is even more true today than it was back then. So the reason why the Cokes have as much power as they do is because they've aggregated as much capital as they have. The reason why Bill Gates is as powerful and important as he is is because he has aggregated capital. So we are in a war of ideas, the arbiter of which in part will be the capital that one brings to affecting those ideas and bringing them to being. So when you put all of these things together, if you believe, again, as I do, that we are better off in a more equitable, fairly distributed world. And, I, and frankly, I come from this perspective not because I'm like some bleeding heart that wants to see all of this stuff. I couldn't care less about any of that. I'm actually a little bit more Darwinian, and I'm like, how interesting would it be for all of us to run a race? Because I suspect some of the people who would win these races are very atypical than the folks that have historically won the race. And that, to me, that delta and that change and that chaos is really interesting. And I just want to be in a position in my lifetime to observe it. Because I suspect that the sort of prototypical you know, person that would have otherwise gone to a very good you know, private high school and gone to an Ivy League school and you know, worked at an investment bank and got an MBA and now all of a sudden is in control of something is probably not the person that will be in charge in the future. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to play out. And it probably won't be a guy, and he probably won't be white. And all of these things are actually important reallocations and redistributions of power. When I asked people what questions they wanted to know, for example, when you think of Bill Gates now, <coughs> malaria is the thing he's tackling in his foundation. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, the response was education. When they hear your name or they see your name, what do you want people to think? Um, I actually, you know, it's funny, and this is going to sound flippant, but I don't particularly care, to be honest with you. Now, that's taken me a long journey to get to a place where I can comfortably tell you that answer, but I, I just, I don't care. I don't care what they think. I'm on a path. I have to do what I have to do. I'm at a point in my life now where I feel very inside out motivated. And so it would be disingenuous for me to give you some glib answer about what I want them to think of me. Because I honestly, at some very, very basic level, I just don't care. Explain a little bit more, if you can, in detail about 
inside out? Well, I think just think everybody grows up in these social hierarchies that, you know, pound into you certain ways of behaving and, and certain value systems. And that happens if you're uh, uh, born a woman instead of a man. That happens if you're born black versus white or if you're born, you know, Muslim versus Catholic. All of these things basically have, in, in, in unfortunate ways, these predefined expectations of you as an individual. And so in many ways, a lot of people, despite their best intentions to break away from that, get beaten down into a system where that's what they end up living out. And so, you know, in my example, my parents emigrated to Canada. You know, we grew up on welfare. I'm kind of like very honest about it now because I just kind of accepted it and lived it. I was deeply ashamed of it when I grew up. I was a pathological liar about it when I grew up. And all my friends knew that I was lying. I would have them drop me off like blocks away from where I actually lived and would walk home and I pretended I lived in a house that I didn't live in. I mean, it was crazy. I was deeply sort of like, you know, trying to live out because I went to this rich high school and I was like the only not rich kid. And so it just created all these things that has taken me a long time to unpack. Then when I went to school, my parents were like, oh, you have to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer because that's the only way we'll feel socially validated for all the sacrifices we made to be here. And I did it, I checked the box. And then when I graduated, they were like, oh, you need to do the thing that's the most respected. I went to work at an investment bank for a year. So for many years, I was living my parents' life and I was basically getting outside-in validation. And then at some point, it just started to chip away where there was just this little circuitry break and I just kept saying, I just don't feel right about the decisions that I'm making. And that culminated ultimately after I went to a place like Facebook that gave me tremendous confidence in my own abilities. What gave you the strength to do that, do you think? I don't know. I was just always telling myself, like, I just don't feel like I'm living my life. Um, and, and look, I have it much easier than many other people uh, because I think the struggles that they go through are probably much deeper and much more psychological. You know, I mean, I, I didn't deal with, like, tremendous abuse in that way. It was just, it was just more of a constant... Chinese water drip torture of just like, this is what you should do, this is what you should do. Uh, it's just very hard to push back and say no because there's no counterfactual to measure it against. And um, you don't know how the future is going to turn out either. No, and, 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 and so I, I, I just think like it, it's taken me a long time to unpack all of this um, and to be really comfortable with who I am as a person, to not care as much. It's helped that I've been successful because it validates my own internal sense of self-worth. So all these things are precursors. I'm not saying like there's some magic formula and you read a book and all of a sudden you know you have this great self-confidence. I'm just saying that I think that a lot of people want to live their own life inside out. And I think they're all looking for, again, ways in which they can get an amount of success that validates the choices that they really do want to make in their life. And so, and again, I go back to, well, what if there were systems that actually created a more democratic way for a different class and a broader class of people to run the race and be successful, you'd probably have, in broadly speaking terms, a more self-actualized, confident society. There'd be less bravado. As a result, I think at a very macro scale, there'd just be a lot less bad things. And I think that's probably generally good for all of us. Let me just push back just a, a, a second and say, not everybody has, as you described, the same past. Some are better, some are worse, and they can be viewed differently by different people. I would think right, that's reasonable. Right, but I think reasonable. everybody, given a chance, would want to live their life on their own terms. 
I think that's true of everybody. I don't think anybody wakes up. But many people do. I don't think as many people do as you think. But whether it's, whether it's that many or not many, the question then becomes through your activities, how are you demonstrating that what you're saying and what you're trying to uh, convince people or, or to show people, rather, uh, is successful? Is, uh, uh, it doesn't have to, this is my point, it doesn't have to be successful. This is why I like, I'm just myself. I can be authentic. I could, all of this money that, we, that, I, that we've been lucky enough to accumulate and make and compound and all of this stuff, it could vanish tomorrow. And then will you say everything that I've said is invalidated? Well, this is an interesting point because you're, in, you're incredulous about it, but as you just described, there are many people who are not living as authentically as you. Yeah, so I mean, I think that we need to create boundary conditions that allow people to do it. So what are those boundary conditions? Again, let me be very clear. One is the systems that hold people back, but two is also a change in how things are valued. Like, if you raise your hands, most people here would say going to Harvard is more important and more valuable than going to Chico State. Is that really true? Are the people that go to Harvard really that much better as individuals and human beings and people and potential as the person that goes to Chico State? There's an entire system that's built up to say the answer is yes, unequivocally yes. But realistically, the answer is probably not yes. And then, then you think about the people that don't even get to make the decision between Harvard and Chico State because you know, you're, you're born into some like, you know, extremely religious you know, Muslim family in Pakistan and you know, you're mutilated when you're a child and you kind of don't even get to go to school. And so I just think like, you know, we have not yet, so we have to solve these problems and then we have to tell people, hey listen, these people are just as valuable as everybody else. And that takes a lot of courage because again, all this value that's been built up over here by telling this guy who went to Harvard that he's a genius and he's really special, it's really hard to unsay it. Because all the people that also went there keep telling everybody that it's so important and they're such geniuses. So I'm just like deeply skeptical about all that stuff now. Because you know, I worked with a lot of really smart people that were dramatically more educated and overqualified than I was. And frankly, I thought I was just as smart and many times I was smarter. And I bumbled my way through high school. I bumbled my way through college. Doesn't mean I was worse. It actually means I was probably smarter because I was thinking about these more complicated, nuanced, psychological situations and issues that actually has allowed me to get to a much more interesting place as a self-actualized human. But where, is, where does society value that? I could be a complete crock of horse, you know. You know, it's like <laughs> I, you know so. It's okay, we get the drift. And, you know, and it's so funny because like, you know, when I come to New York, it just viscerally hits me in the face. This entire city in many ways, just like kind of like, I just like have a real question mark around it because like you just see these signals that people want to make about like, you know, like there's like these, all these old boys clubs everywhere. And it's like, and you just like, like, again, it's a very traditionally defined set of values that allow a very, very small cohort to basically lord on top of everybody else because of their inherited superiority. And I think that's structurally corrosive and I think it's over the long term destructive, especially as on the other end of the spectrum, information is generally more available and people are growing up in a world where we all understand that functionally most of these emperors don't have any clothes. And so that's where you see a lot of this toxic nature of how people are reacting. They're reacting to that, right? 
The New York Times had an article which I thought was wonderful. In a political context, it, they, they had it very clear terms. Sorry, Bloomberg View had this article. And <laughs> Uh, it's for Sheiky. I Shiki don't even Shiki. have to say anything. But they talked about the schism between the voting class and the donor class. That's another example of this, right? Before, the voting class and the donor class were the same group. But now, the donor class are the Cokes, and the voting class are all these people who feel completely disenfranchised. So yet another manifestation of this problem. So I think like this is the problem of our time. This is the thing that we all need to work on in different ways. I choose to do it by fixing the things that retard progress in a technological context. And in my lifetime, all I'm hoping is that the net effect of that is that more interesting people get to the starting line. And I think a couple generations afterwards, we'll have a completely different power structure that is very different from what it looks like today. And the net effect of that, I think, will be better for the world. I'm trying to think of where to go next, but I'm, I, I think I know where I'm going next is in a taxi uh, in New York, probably a yellow cab that's probably driven by a fellow from Pakistan. Sure. Okay. One of my people. So what am I supposed to say to him? Nothing. No, 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 no. Wait a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> what am I supposed to say to him when I get in the cab? And I usually say some kind of greeting, and I say, "How's it? How you know? How you doing?" And he says, "Not great. You know that Uber thing? Fares really bad. No one tips. Business is lousy. Yeah. I just want to know what would you recommend? I mean, I could just say I'm sorry and leave it at that. What should I say to him?" Well, it's a, I mean, look, in the Because that's reality. From, I mean, I have to live, we live with that, right? So sure. just for your New York information, I mean, the fact that I'm always amazed, sorry, man, I'm always amazed that this many people get along as well as they do mixed up together. Because I lived in San Francisco and the Bay Area for 13 years, and people spend great amounts of time in their car. They have a space, a private, in their car. They don't really mix, right? The dirty right. little secret of San Francisco is that all of the African-American people are in Oakland. Yeah, I mean, and that's, a, but no, no, but I mean, you want to talk about American history. I know a lot about American history. And I'm just saying that the reason why they're there is because they were shipped north to build the Liberty ships in the Second World War. So they don't have the luxury of taking the long view. So what do I tell this taxi driver when he says to me, you know, that Uber thing is making it more difficult sure, me for me to feed my family. Sure. Um, before I answer that, let me just say something. So I, I, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of San Francisco. Um, I don't live there. I don't spend any time there. I think they are full of imposters and actors and entrepreneurs. Um, San Francisco, in many ways, is a very toxic place. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. I think they, they basically bungled the management of that city as badly as it could have been done. We could go down the peninsula, um, but I won't. All right, so no, I mean, I think Palo Alto is great. Ah, okay. How about, the, what, isn't there, east, isn't there East Palo Alto on the other side of the railroad tracks? Yeah. What does that look like? Looks better than it has. But what does it look like? Does it look like the other side? I'm saying there are differences. Yeah. I don't need to debate them, but I'm just curious, what do I say to the guy who drives me home tonight, I think who complains answer, that I there's too I much technology. I think the, I think the answer um, 
is best relayed in a story. So in the turn of the, the, turn of the 20th century, um, there were millions and millions of people, Americans, that worked on farms. And it was a structurally large part of the American labor population. So call it like you know, 10, 15%. And then we had the advent of the tractor. And what was interesting over the next 100 years is when you look at what's happened is two things have happened interestingly. The first is that the number of people that work on farms is now less than 300,000 or 400,000 people. But at the same time, yields have gone up by about 10x. So you had a 10x reduction in the workforce and a 10x, redu 10x increase. And so it's about a 1x improvement every year in the ability for us as a population uh, to feed ourselves. And interestingly, we're one of very few countries that can actually do that, have enough resources and have enough crops and have enough food supplies to do that. In any given moment in time, and Warren Buffett wrote this in his investor letter. I encourage you to read it. It's quite, it's quite fantastic, this past is one especially. In any given point in time, if you had asked one of those farmers, a disenfranchised 20-something male, typically, they would have felt that the world was ending. Because in that moment, they had just been displaced from a farm. It was not clear what was going to happen next for them. But the beautiful part of capitalism, entrepreneurialism, and specifically like American ingenuity, is that things came to being. Things were invented. Entire industries were built. Job types that didn't exist 50 years ago that then did exist completely reshaped the labor pool and opportunity. I think it's important to make sure that when we think about specific things like Uber or cars or what have you, to not get really myopic in the local minimum and overreact. Because I think the thing that we have to allow is the type of ingenuity and entrepreneurialism that unlocks people to build the next great class of businesses. And in that, I think you will find 20 years from now, looking back, that some of the people in this room have invented things where you'd be like, that's a job? That's a thing? That's a service? I need that? I want that? And the answer will probably be yeah. And those are the things that we're going to go through a phase of building and exposing. So again, I just think that the, the doom and gloom, meaning saying it differently, or more betting against the human condition and spirit is, has been basically a losing trade since the beginning of humanity. I don't think 2016 is the point where you go short. And so a lot of it makes for great headlines and you know you can prognosticate either you know extreme right libertarianism or you know tree hugging you know leftist nonsense neither are true the middle path is roughly what's probably going to play out which is great people will get easier and easier access to capital those people will be will have less and less preventable disease those people will roughly be able to educate themselves easier and easier in simpler ways. They will not need to be credentialed. They'll just need skills. And they'll be able to build things cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Good segue for Amazon, by the way. And you'll find that things exist that we didn't expect. And those things become the sinks of human labor, where the sources are these other job classes that change for the better. And so I, think, I just think you have to kind of be a little bit more strategic in the aperture in which you define the problem.
All right, we'll leave my taxi driver out of this. How about my UPS driver who's delivering those Amazon boxes? Is he going to be wearing an Amazon uh, hat in no, a couple of years? No, but I think that he or she in 15 years is prob could be, if they choose to, sitting in their living room operating the drone that drops them off. See, I mean, it sounds kind of idiotic or it sounds maybe crazy or it sounds kind of far-fetched, but, I mean, we have legions of people right now flying drones for a living. They're here right now. They're probably listening to everything we're saying. <laughs> they're just not sitting in their underwear in their home. You know, they're sitting in some Air Force Base someplace. My point is that these things are possible. They're happening today. They're going to happen at scale. They will give an outlet for people to do a different classification of work. We should embrace that future, not try to run away from it. Because that kind of stuff is very deterministic and inevitable anyway. And the faster we figure out how to retrain these broad swaths of people to be able to do these different jobs, the better off everybody will be. You want to just talk in two minutes about Amazon specifically? Well, I mean, just speaking to this as an example, like if you look at the number of customers Amazon has today, just very simply, they have a million customers today. It's only 10 years into AWS. Million customers. Oracle's taken 40 years to get to, I think, 400,000 odd customers. So you can only imagine 40 years from now, or 30 years from now, when AWS is 40 years old, they're probably going to be serving hundreds of millions of people who will be able to have an idea and solve for what is today an extremely difficult and convoluted problem. What is a server? How do I stand up a website? What does it mean to sell this? And you won't have to deal with any of that. It'll be completely abstracted. It'll be like a light switch, you turn it on. So really then what you'll have to focus on is what is your product, how will you price it, how is it marketed, what does it stand for. Those are things that many of us can do today. But not many of us can figure out how to configure a server. So why would we ever want to do that work? So let Amazon do it. They'll make that price virtually costless for us. And again, it'll unlock the ability for people to think of the things that should sit on top of that stuff. You know, evolution in many ways is like an architectural problem. You build a foundation, and around it, you build up slowly. And so for us, like we're at a point where we just have to remind ourselves that we're evolving as a species in a way where we can build on top of the things that have come before us. And so we should not overreact to technological abstraction. You have to figure out and be open-minded enough to start to experiment at the edges with what are those things that then are now possible. And it just takes a little bit of intellectual ownership and courage. Thank you so much for listening. And be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of our interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.